This episode is brought to you by The One Summit, two days that would change your life forever. For tickets, go to theonesummit.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts, Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damien Christoph, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to The Wellness Guys. I'm Lawrence Tam. And I'm Brett Hill. And we're missing Damien Kristoff. <laughs> and this is the Wellness Guy Show, a weekly show dedicating bringing wellness to our lives. And uh, everybody, I'm really excited about this because we've had actually, it's a weird coincidence that, uh, maybe not a coincidence, but there was actually two or three different listeners at the same time uh, recommended that we should interview this next person that's, uh, that's going to be on our show today. And uh, within the span of like a week, wasn't it, Brett? And the funny thing about this, we'd already actually teed it up. So yeah, sorry, that was a, that ready was a, to roll. Everyone's yeah. like, "You shouldn't be this guy." Well, that's awesome because we are. So yeah. that's great. <laughs> so, so it's great. So we actually have uh, Jason Sean Bennett uh, from New Zealand uh, joining us on the call tonight, uh, who has this book, the new book coming out. It's called "Eat Less, Live Long," and it's not available in Australia yet at the moment, and it's not available. In, I don't think it's in North America yet. So that's why we this interview is so important because he's got an amazing story. I don't really want to take too much time explaining his personal story because he's you know. His story will come, uh, you know, come up from the conversation we're going to have. But he is um, definitely a health researcher. He's an author. He's a speaker. Um, of um, also, he come up with a, a something called the life plan. And so, uh, welcome to the Wellness Guy Show, Jason. Oh, look! Thank you so much. It's uh, it's so good to be on the show. I've I've heard so many good things about you guys over the years. So, yeah, wonderful to be here. Well, Jason, let's start off with the first question. I mean, let's talk about your, you know, how you got started in this journey. I know it goes way back to when you were first born. And so let's talk through that journey and, and how you got to where you are now. Okay. Well, I, I yes, I was born uh, way back, 1967. My mum had toxemia when I was in the womb. So she was very, very unwell. And uh, so as soon as the doctors realized what was wrong with her and that she was so sick, they whipped her into hospital and uh, chopped me out. So I was a little cesarean baby born at seven months gestation. And uh, so I ended up with all kinds of problems. I, uh, as I grew, I got to age five or six, and I ended up with uh, asthma. I was a bad asthmatic with hay fever, with allergies. I caught every cold, every bug, every flu that went around. You know, I was allergic to a lot of things. I was on 16 shots of Ventolin a day, so I was taking a lot of medication. I was uh, taking Intel Prevention as well, which is a you know prevention drug for asthma. I was also on steroid injections, and I was in and out of hospital on breathing apparatus. So I ended up being very, very unwell. And for a long period of time, and, and I was just consistently told that it was incurable and it was genetic and nothing could be done, you know, bad luck, son, take the drugs. So, and, you know, these were wonderful doctors. They were doing the best they could. They just, you know, couldn't help me in any way. So uh, they said, keep taking the drugs, keep doing that. And uh, so I carried on and, and I was just sick pretty much every day. I always had colds and flus and bugs. And I got to the age of 20 when I uh, conceived my first child, Trey, who's now 25. And uh, when we made him, I kind of was sitting there one night and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to be a very good father if I have to take drugs to go to bed and I have to take drugs to wake up and I have to take drugs during the day and I have to take prevention drugs, you know, just to get through each day. And of course, I'm constantly having asthma and, and hay fever attacks and allergies. And I had by then developed digestion problems and bowel issues and constipation and I had skin problems and acne and all kinds of trouble. So I was, I was really, I was a real mess. And um I'd never, ever considered or been told that there was anything possible to do with diet and lifestyle and environment. So uh, this was back in 1987, of course. There wasn't as much information. And so I started, I thought, okay, well, what if I start investigating, you know, what it is to be well? Because I know what it's like to be sick. I've done that for 20 years. So why don't I have a look at how can you be well and how do you stay well and can I get well? And is there any other information out there? So 
I started going to public libraries and I started photocopying information. And this was years before the internet. So you'd literally have to order a book in. And then when the book came in, you'd, you'd read it and you'd find the research you wanted. And then you'd photocopy the research. And it was 10 cents a page on a photocopier. You know, it was a completely different world in terms of researching. And funnily enough, some of the research that I did back then, I've still got in boxes and I still used when I was putting my book together, my first book. Um, so I started researching. And I discovered fasting, I discovered uh, eating less, I discovered the, the centenarians, which are these groups of people all over the world who live into their hundreds at much higher rates than we do. Like the Loma Linda population in California, they have 10 centenarians for every one centenarian outside of that in the States. So they have 10 people hitting 100 for every one on average anywhere else in America. And the same thing is in places like Okinawa and Nagano in Japan. So I started reading about these places and kind of thinking, well, if these people can do it, then you know, maybe I could do it as well. So I started reading about what they were doing and what they were eating and how they were living. And over about four years, I'd, I'd, I'd studied just about every diet I could get my hands on from raw foods to, to the centenarian diets, to macrobiotics, to Ayurvedic, to Chinese medicine, to all kinds of different stuff. And as I went through, I got little bits of gold from each one. And that was the cool thing. I started to slowly get well. And then after about four years, uh, after doing all these changes and regular fasting and enemas and all kinds of different things, you know, I was really interested in, in whatever it took to get well. You know, I really was focused on getting well. And after about four years, I'd cured everything. And that was in, you know, oh, 1991, 92, 93, around that kind of period. And uh, from then on, I haven't been sick. So from then on, I haven't had asthma attack. I've had no hay fever, allergies. I never get a cold or a flu or a bug. I now travel all over the world giving presentations. And I've got the program that I do and all these different things. And I've raised my kids and I never get sick. So I've learned a lot from what I've done. And how this has all evolved is essentially that because people have known me for so long and they've known how well I am, and a lot of these people knew how sick I was, slowly over the last 10 years or so, people have asked me more and more and more, can you teach me to get well? Can I learn from you? Can you train me how to do this? And this has come from doctors and from naturopaths and nutritionists and all these wonderful people. And of course, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a naturopath. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm nothing like that. I do have naturopaths and nutritionists on staff now who we work with in the program. And I've actually worked with doctors in Scotland and America and Canada and Australia, all over the world now, who love what I do. And and uh, so I've kind of ended up in this strange position where I'm now teaching people how to get well and how to stay well. And I'm teaching them what are the secrets of the centenarians and what have we learned from them and how do you fast and, you know, what is it to eat a plant-based diet and what does fiber mean and where does that come from and how do we get my tr nutrition and my iron and all that kind of stuff. So it's been this amazing, amazing process where I never thought I'd end up in a position like this at all. Um, and yet it feels incredible because I'm now 46 and I'm in better shape than I ever was in my 30s or 20s. And um, I've got adult children who have done the same thing and my son's broken a Guinness World Record after fasting and he ended up in Rome doing all kinds of great stuff. So so lots of kind of neat stories and experiences I've had along the way. But I guess the key thing is that I'm passionate about and what's got me here is I really want to teach people that there are another there is other ways. You know, there there really is the most important thing that they need to know is the diet, lifestyle, and environment. They are the three things that will transform their health. And if you can really have people start to understand that it's what they eat, it's how they live and where they live and what they do every day. They are the key things that make the biggest difference. And for me, I mean, it's cured everything wrong with me. And I was in an incurable case that nothing could be done for. And yet I've cured it all. And I've worked now with people with heart disease and all kinds of different things. And it's same miraculous results just through changing people's diet, lifestyle and environment. So I'm a huge fan of walking the talk uh, that you can make change. And I often say to people, look, 
the biggest challenge you're going to have is this six-letter swear word called change because most people are so afraid of change and so challenged by changing anything. But um, I got really obsessed with it and I did it and um, now I find myself teaching it. So it's a funny story, but um, a true one and, and, a, and, a, and a strange one and, and a very satisfying one, I guess. So, uh, so Jason, obviously, like you said, you've looked at lots of different things and, and changed by the sound of it lots of different things throughout your, your diet and your lifestyle and all that sort of stuff. So what do you yeah. think were the keys? Like, What were the main things you changed that you think made the biggest difference? Uh, well, I think one of the first ones was giving up alcohol. That's one of the first key things. And uh, I always, whenever I do seminars, I always mention alcohol and have a little chat to people and just give them a bit of a reality check because, you know, alcohol can be fine for people and, and that's fine. People can tolerate it. But also, it's a huge problem. And I mean, Australia, as you guys will know, you've got a yeah. massive problem with Australia. Uh, how, how, how do you find the reception when you talk to Aussies about that, Jason? Yeah, look, they all look at me strange. But, you know, one of the first things I say is, look, I'm a Kiwi guy. Look, I'm just going to tell you the way it is. I'm not going to be nice about it. I'm not going to BS about it. I'm just going to be straight about it and you make your own decision. You know, alcohol is a poison. It creates acetaldehyde every time you drink it. doesn't matter whether it's Dalai Lama blessed certified organic red wine or whether it's, you know, homemade stuff you, you, you made out of your urinal. It makes no difference. The bottom line is if it hits the, the liver, the liver will create a metabolite um, called acetaldehyde. And acetaldehyde is as toxic as aluminium and nuclear grade plutonium. So that's just the bottom line. And we know liver cancer and liver diseases are growing all over the planet, you know, all the time. So, you know, one of the key things that uh, I try to talk to people about is liver health, trying to keep their liver strong and healthy. And how do you do that? You, you cut back your sugar, your processed foods and your alcohol. And most people, you know, in the West are literally drinking themselves towards breast cancer and liver cancer. And it's a shocker, you know, it's linked to so many different cancers. And when you look at all the, the cancer epidemiology and the studies and the cancer and the genetics and all these people, and I research these people all the time, and you talk to the people from the liver uh, cancer units and the liver treatment units, um, they all say the same thing. They all say, look, you know, the number one problem here is alcohol. Uh, people just don't see it as something that's a treat anymore. And, and alcohol is fine as a treat. You know, moderate drinking is one drink a week. That's fine. But, you know, two glasses of wine a night, that's not moderate drinking. You know, that's a drinking dependency problem. And that's completely different relationship with alcohol. You know, it's, it's not a normal product. So I guess a, a short answer to the question is one of the key things I gave up was alcohol. It was a really good decision to make for me. Um, second thing I gave up was meat a long time ago, so about 30 years now since I had any meat. Uh, and that was huge for my bowel and my digestive system because, of course, our digestive system is pretty much a run on fiber. And most of us are not getting enough fiber. And fiber, of course, is only in your fruits and vegetables and nuts, seeds, whole grains, legumes, things like that. So, you know, your plant foods. And so I really kind of started discovering, because I was a Kiwi, I'd been raised on meat and three veg, you know, and the three veg were cooked and they didn't vary much. And, you know, we had to have meat with every meal. And uh, so I just thought that's that's what you did. You know, New Zealand's a big farm, essentially. So uh, giving up meat was huge for me and giving up uh, alcohol and getting my bowels working again, getting my energy back. And bowels are so important. It's a key part of what I teach people because, people really underestimate how important having good bowel health is. And, and as far as I'm concerned, everything about your health comes from the gut. You know, your genetic expressions in there, your probiotics in there, your microbiome, your living bacteria is in there that dominates the entire way the body expresses itself. You know, your, your longevity is in there. How your brain functions is in there. Your depression risk is in there. It's all in the gut. And so I'm a huge fan of working and strengthening the gut and getting that really strong. And that then has this huge influence on everything else, like your immune system is 90% in the gut. And of course, that influences your respiratory system. So when I was getting my asthma fixed and getting that sorted, the first thing I did was work on my bowel health, which of course transforms your immune system, which transforms your respiratory system. So it's always about getting back to the gut. So 
if you can get your gut healthy, you can get your liver healthy, a lot of other stuff will fall into place like your skin problems and things. So alcohol was huge for me. Meat was huge. Getting off the sugar, uh, learning about plants, eating fresh plants and vegetables, you know, regular fasting. Um, they were, I guess, probably the key things that I started out with. Well, that's a great transition here because as soon as we talk about poo, and guess who shows up on the call? <laughs> I'm Damien Christoph. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jason. Hey, good to good to have you on the call, mate. So, Thank you. A very familiar Kiwi sound coming through there. <laughs> yes, I've been told. Yeah, sweet brew. Hey, uh, Jason. When you were talking about alcohol, that kind of rung. Um, bells with me because I've, I got back from um, Auckland. I was speaking in Auckland only a couple of weeks ago and uh, I was reminded of how much Kiwis drink. Um, I'm not going to put you into that whole yeah. bundle because obviously you've given up. But when I worked in New Zealand, the one thing that I found that was most, uh, I suppose, concerning to me was that the people that I saw the most and the people that I tried to help the most drank enormous amounts of alcohol, like sometimes over a bottle of night. And, uh, and they... they said that that was, you know, pretty common and pretty reasonable and it was unusual that they would have an AFD. And, uh, and that was very, very concerning to me. What are you guys doing over there now about trying to decrease the amount of alcohol being consumed over there in New Zealand? Well, there's, there's, uh, it's one of the reasons that I, I, I really hammer it home because I, I seem to be, as far as I can tell, one of the few health researchers that, that you know, and it's good to hear you talking about it as well, that really do uh, talk about alcohol the way it is which is that it's not a normal product. You know, it causes cancer. We know it's linked to breast cancer, to liver cancer, bowel cancer. You know, there's huge links with alcohol, with disease that's wiping us out in ways that we shouldn't need to be wiped out. In. And, you know, the non-communicable diseases being 70% of all the deaths on the planet. You know, we, we need to be doing something about it. So I totally agree about alcohol. I never hold back on it. And in terms of New Zealand and your question about what we're doing over here, we're not doing a lot. You know, it's a very... Um, I guess you could say politically correct in people's views. They tend to leave alcohol alone. I, I seem to be a lone voice in terms of it's, – it's usually me and the scientists. Of course, you get a lot of scientists speaking up about it because they see the science and they know what's going on. But I seem to be a lone voice in the health industry. Uh, well, Dr. The, Libby, surely she'd be talking about it. Yeah, 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 she does. Absolutely, absolutely. But I really hammer it. You know, I really, I, I really go at it. You know, I yeah. think it's really important to, to bring it up because a, a lot of people shy away from it because it is very, um, I guess it's controversial because it kind of gets into to, to people's addictive natures and the emotional states and, and that kind of thing as well. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, I haven't drunk since I was 18. I gave up 30 years ago. So, uh, you know, I've lived a, an adult life um, without alcohol. So I'm, I'm very comfortable, I guess, not drinking and being around people who are drinking and it's fine. I have no issue with it at all. But it's uh, it's like you say, it's it's the normalization and just the fact that Moderate drinking doesn't seem to exist anymore. No one knows what moderate drinking is. You know, they've just forgotten. Moderate drinking is one drink a week. Mm. Yeah. No so one understands it anymore. Yeah. yeah. You know, Jason, yeah. one of the things that, um, you know, you talked about before was uh, you mentioned kind of, you know, fasting. You know, could you talk yes. a little bit about, um, you know, what type of fasting are you ta that you are recommending and um, why do you do it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, fasting was one of those first things I got into when I really um, kind of started thinking about, okay, well, you know, what about these people that eat less, like the centenarians, these groups of people that live long, healthy lives, and what are the things they do? And one of the things you notice when you start to look at these groups is often they've been through long periods of hardship or they've been through periods where there's been a lot of famine. 
And it's one of those things where fasting now has pretty much become a choice. Because when you look at history, up until the Second World War, and, and I consider about during the Second World War, it pretty much was the peak of nutrition in terms of the West, simply because, of course, we sent all the red food, uh, the red meat and all the processed food off with the soldiers in the war. And everyone here was left behind eating you know, less food, less food overall. Uh, there was rationing. There was less sweets. There was less meat, less processed food. We had to grow our own food, that kind of thing. So there was quite a peak there in the 1939 to 45 period. And, of course, it, it's reflected in world data on uh, heart disease deaths and diabetes and obesity and cancers, they all dropped in the Second World War because people were eating less. So we can look at that kind of study and then we can look at things like Cuba. And if you look at the, the Cuba example, when it comes to fasting or eating less, you'll find that in Cuba, they, the disease rates were growing and they've got incredible uh, statistics in Cuba because they've got such exacting records and, and their disease rates were growing of all the Western diseases right up until 1990. And in 1990, something happened called the Soviet Union crashing. And that had been 1991. So in 1991, the Soviet Union crashed. And of course, immediately, uh, they stopped sending in fuel and processed food to Cuba. And, and within a year or so, Cuba had wiped out its, its uh, diabetes deaths by 50% and heart disease deaths by 34%. So there's this massive and immediate drop-off in diabetes deaths. And as we know, diabetes is this massive problem. And I mean, you guys in Australia, you've got whatever it's 275 cases a day or whatever it is from memory happening of diabetes cases every single day. And, you know, to, to be able to wipe out an entire country's diabetes rates by 50% in 12 months is outstanding. And, and, and it's never been done before or since. And the only reason it happened was because there was less processed food, less food overall, they had to grow their own food, they had to eat less, and they had to walk. And they were the key things that happened. So when you start to look through history, you can start to find places like that that have eaten less and also been through famine. And the fallout of being through famine is people start to understand what happens with fasting. And, and the fasting that I recommend is, is fairly simple in the sense that it's vegetable juice and it's always based around green vegetable juice. I'm not a fan of fruit juice fasting at all. You know, why is that? Because we're all so completely oversugared. I mean, there's just everyone is oversugared. Even if you don't want to be, you're oversugared, you know, just simply because of all the gluten and fat and salt and sugar and everything. So everyone's got too much sugar. And fruit's amazing. I mean, the centenarians eat lots of fruit, so that's cool. But when you're fasting, I absolutely recommend just vegetable juice, green and as bitter as you can get it dandelion leafy greens kales cauliflower cucumber celery uh, all of those kind of things beetroot as well really really good and always having in there some ginger as well because ginger is so good at removing cholesterol lowering um, the sugar in the blood helping the heart really good for circulation cold hands and feet and also really good for removing poison so you can actually juice very, very cheaply and, and really economically if you want to one day a week. And, and what I recommend to people and what I teach people on the program we do, apart from everything else, of course, is reg, what I call regular intelligent fasting. And it's something I've been asked more about over the last 20 years than anything else because people were amazed that I would fast for 31 days at a time or I'd do 14 days in the middle of winter on water. You know, So I've, I've become very experienced at fasting over long periods of time. And it's been an absolute key part of transforming my gut health, my liver health, my respiratory system, my immune system, because we're actually genetically built for it. When you think about it, if you look back through history, you think, okay, was there always food 24-7? And when you think about it, well, no, before the Second World War, there wasn't. Even in the West, there was regular rationing, regular famine. We, we, you know, we didn't always have the amount of food we wanted. So when there's not the amount of food, and Mother Nature, of course, never provided all the food we wanted. What she'd do would say, she'd go, oh, here's a sunny day, here's some crops, here's some food, and then suddenly there'd be a tsunami. So all the crops would be gone and, and we'd have to fast because we'd have to use up those body fat levels and the fuel that we stored in the human body. So there's always been famine and feasting and famine and feasting. We've already done that. So our genetics have always been speaking to us from the perspective of I can deal with not enough food occasionally, 
But what I can't deal with is too much food and too much of the wrong kind of food. And of course, since the Second World War, that's been the challenge is we've just got too much food, too much of the wrong kind of food. And what we used to have to do was fast. And of course, fasting now has become a choice. And that's very different. You know, when you, you take a country and, and you remove its processed food and you remove its, its a fuel, that kind of stuff, people then will have to grow their own vegetables. They'll have to walk. They don't have a choice in it. But when you look at now, what I try to teach people is actually to choose fasting as a way of giving their liver a break. Because genetically, we're hardwired for fasting. I mean, we store fuel incredibly well. As soon as we have too much of anything, we store it on the body. And that's called getting fat. You know, we store that fuel and, you know, we've got fuel in every cell. We've got glycogen in the liver. We've got protein in the blood. We've got fat in the bone marrows. You know, one one pound of body fat is two days fuel. It's three and a half thousand calories. So there's plenty of fuel. I mean, if, if you're a typical Aussie or Kiwi, I mean, Aussie men, as you guys probably know now, most overweight in the world now, rated number one, number two in the whole planet next to the Kiwi men and the Americans. And so if you look at your typical, typical Aussie male or female, they might be carrying 10 pounds of fat, 20 pounds of fat, possibly. That's 20 to 40 days of fasting fuel, three and a half thousand calories per pound. So, you know, they're ready to go whenever they want to. And I think it's a great point you make there, Justin. We, we do have heaps of fuel, don't we? But we don't necessarily have heaps of nutrients. And I think, you know, this yeah. is one of the concerns I have with some of the fasting programs you see out there is that they kind of, some of them seem to suggest that, well, it's, you just need a fast and it doesn't really matter what you eat in between. You just do these fasts and then you eat in these certain periods of time. And, and I guess one of the concerns with that, and certainly not what with you're talking about with getting lots of veggies and stuff, but with some of the others, you know, one of the concerns is if, if all you do is fast, but you don't change the, the quality of the food or the nutrient density of your food, that then you might actually be ending up a bit malnourished. You know, what are your thoughts on that? I totally agree. Totally agree with you. And and that, that it's a great point you make. And that's that's exactly why I call the fasting I teach people regular intelligent fasting. You know, and I put the intelligent word in there specifically because intelligent does not mean you can have a hamburger on the days you're fasting. You know, that doesn't mean that. Intelligent I mean if you look at grammatically, intelligent and hamburger don't actually go together in the same sentence. So, you know, there's a real issue there with the word intelligent because you can't eat crappy food and then fast and think you're doing something like you say holistically or healthy and you, you just can't. So when I teach people how to regularly intelligent fast, it's about making your vegetable juice and looking after yourself when you're eating again. So you don't then go on to bad food. You're actually eating well. You're getting enough fiber. You've got a plant-based whole food diet. You're getting enough sleep. You've got a good routine in your life. You know, you're lowering your stress. You've got some time out to relax. You're stretching your body every day. You're exercising. So it's all those other holistic aspects as well. And I completely agree with you. Having a nutrient-dense nutrition-rich whole food diet is key if you're going to fast because fasting is certainly not a magic bullet. It's one good thing you can do if it's done intelligently and well that will help you live a long, healthy life, but it's certainly not a magic bullet. You know, one of the biggest things, I mean, you help a lot of people help, you know, obviously create some change in their life. And one of the most fundamental things is not necessarily always about the foods that they eat um, or the things that they're doing in terms of exercise. It's also the mental block, you know, their resistance to actually get outside of their comfort zone to really kind of create that change for themselves. How do you address that with your clients? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. What, uh, how we've done that is, and again, this was just purely done by accident. None of this was planned in that sense. Um, you know, I didn't plan to teach people how to get well just because I'd been well and I'd cured myself, but it, it turned into this kind of tsunami of, of people asking me, including doctors and pharmacists and all kinds of people, uh, about how to do it. And, and what my wife and I started doing, we did a, a seminar once at the local school. We did a, it as a fundraiser. And I talked about all the stuff that we're discussing now and it was a really full-on seminar and everyone's kind of left a bit shell-shocked at the end of it. And, uh, and then I started getting approached by people afterwards over the next few days in their local community saying, you know all that stuff you taught? 
and you talked about, can you teach me because I'm overweight or I've got a heart problem or whatever it was. And uh, I said, look, no, no, I'm finishing my book and I'm writing my book and you can get my book one day and, you know. Uh, but then I, my wife said to me, look, you've got to start teaching this stuff because people don't know what to do. You know, it's all very good writing a book or, or going to see someone, but what do you do every day? So we started having a group of people over at our place and I'd talk to them once a month and I'd send them emails and it slowly kind of developed and grew into a program. And what we found has worked really, really well with people is not just the inspiration and the research and education for me. And, I, and I'm, I'm a research nut. You know, I'm sending these people uh, an email every day, every second day for a year on all kinds of stuff, but really cutting to the heart of it. Simple little bullet points on what you can do. You know, how do you get iron in the body? How do you keep it there? Here's everything you need to know about iron in one email, that kind of stuff. But also my wife, Tracy, sending them recipes and teaching them how to cook and prepare food. So how do you eat some raw food every day? How do you get some fermented food into you every day? How do you cook food well? You know, what kind of ingredients do you need to use? How do you uh, soak foods? You know, how do you how do you use foods in all these different ways that the centenarians do and these long-lived people do? So I totally agree with you. It's it's instigating change with people, but it requires not only inspiration and education and research, it also requires changing of diet. And how you do that is by supplying people with regular recipes and regular support and traces available to people on the program for a year. And then we've got backing that up as well, our two naturopaths and nutritionists. So they're available as well. So not only do we supply the information, the research and the inspiration, but we also supply the recipes as well. So the how to on top of the why you should. But then there's also the support with the naturopaths and the nutritionists that we've got, both of whom have lived in Japan with the centenarians, which is wonderful. And then on top of that, there's the supporting with the fasting. So we all fast one day a week regularly and we choose a different day each week and whoever wants to fast in the program can do that. Uh, and then there's the food diaries and keeping a, a, check, a check on what people are eating and how they, you know how many bowel motions they've got. Are they drinking alcohol? What exercise have they done? That kind of thing. And working towards their own specific goals with them. So it's a very full, full um complicated but very very simple program that addresses supporting people for a whole year to get them well and that's what we've found works the most that's great jason it sounds uh sounds very thorough very comprehensive i've uh, been running a podcast and many of the listeners will have listened to it before called 100 not out and uh we interview centenarians uh, from around the world and we actually had looked at doing a trip to ikaria in uh, in the greek islands um, Fantastic. which is of course one of the blue zones like what you're talking about with Okinawa yeah. Uh, yeah. it's one of the, the blue zones but interestingly the uh, the Ikarians also uh, consume regular alcohol and most nights they would drink one to two um, one to two drinks of red wine every night they also eat um, meat they, don't ha- they have a plant based diet but they also eat meat they don't eat fish which is really interesting because it's too far to walk to the ocean um, and uh, but they have a, a like a very socially engaged lifestyle, so they're very social. Um, they're very engaged with the community. They still have um, a lot of purpose in their community. But what I've found really interesting with this particular group of people is that they consume alcohol and they consume meat, um, and they don't tend to have a lot of variety in their vegetables and plants. Um, but have you got any take on that? Because my feeling is that there's not a whole lot of consistency with the centenarians um, across the world. It just seems to be that um, maybe it's more to do with mindset. 
Yeah, well, I think I think some of what you say I agree with, and some of it I don't. So, in terms of the stuff I agree with, absolutely, that the mindset is so important. Like, you know, these people certainly have a place that they belong. They have a sense of purpose. You know, they have a, a spiritual take on the world. So, there's certainly a sense of community and a sense of purpose, and uh, and that they actually matter to their communities. That seems to be a huge thing with the centenarians. Absolutely, totally agree with that. For sure. In terms of, yeah, yeah. So, no question that they 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 have a place for themselves. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're valued and respected by the people around them. And I think that gives them a sense of purpose and, 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 a, and a want to continue to be alive rather than yeah. just r- rotting away, feeling like no one loves me, you know. Absolutely. Um, so there's definitely a strength with that. But when you look at, you know, the Vilcabambas and the Abkhazians, the Okinawans, uh, the Loma Linda, uh, those groups of people, you find that actually are a lot of commonalities in the sense that there is very low alcohol. And I know that the Akarans are a little bit different in some of those in the Mediterranean, different in terms of they do have the alcohol. Mm. However... When you look at the other commonalities, they eat significantly less than what we do. That's one commonality. Yeah, a mixture of raw foods and soaked and sprouted fermented foods. So you find the sauerkraut there or miso or yogurt. There's good qualities of good fermented living foods. Um, Also, four to five times more vegetables and fruit than we do. Even if the variety isn't a lot, they still eat an enormous, much, much higher amount than we do. They don't tend to overly process their grains as well. So they're about 30% whole grain intake and they don't overly process them. So if they're having rice, for instance, it'll be brown rice, not white rice. And they'll have a very high fiber intake as well. So very, very high fiber intake, uh, a lot of vegetables, a variety in what they're eating, but all locally, well, not all, but mostly locally grown. If they are eating meat, it's in smaller amounts, but with a lot of vegetation, as opposed to what we do, which is three to four meals a day. When you look at those other five groups of centenarians, you find that the meat intake's about 4% of their daily intake, so much, much lower. And I know it varies in the Mediterranean in those groups as well. But overall, it does seem to be a high plant diet, a mixture of the different ways of processing the foods, around 1,900, 2,000 calories a day, high levels of vegetation. If they're eating whole grains and legumes, it's full fiber. Uh, They move every day. They have a a rhythm and a routine. They get a lot of sleep. You know, they're generally getting eight hours sleep or so a night. Uh, And if they are having uh, little bits of, you know, if they've got the alcohol or anything like that, they're having small amounts, but good quality local stuff. You know, they're not importing the high sugar alcohols and things like that. So there does seem to be a lot of commonalities right through when you look at it. And, you know, they do vary all around the world, but there's more commonalities than, I guess, uncommonalities. Jason, thank you so much uh, for your time and your insights. Um, if you guys want to check out Jason, his website is Jason Sean Bennett. It's Jason Sean S H O N Bennett with double N and B E double N E double T dot com. Um, Jason, you also um, is your book is coming out. Eat less, uh, live long. Uh, it's already out in New Zealand. It's, it's one of the bestsellers over there, um, and so it's coming out to Australia and North America. Is that correct? Yes, we're certainly working on it. We've got a lot of invitations to come back to North America. I haven't been there yet, but to Canada, I recently was there and I have a lot of invitations to come back in in the book as well. Uh, We're working with some publishers. We self-publish, so we we kind of were were very taken and surprised by the the sales success and we've got a lot of interested publishers in Australia. So fingers crossed, we're looking at maybe September, October for a launch in Australia and potentially then falling out into America. All right, well, thank you so much for your time, Jason. It's, uh, It's been great chatting with you. Oh, look, thank you guys so much. You do a great job. And uh, absolutely, anytime you want to chat about anything, you give me a bell. I'd, I'd love to love to come back on. And thanks for your time. All right, guys. Well, make sure you go to our Facebook page. Keep this conversation going on uh, Facebook.com slash The Wellness Guys or The Wellness Couch. Like us on Facebook while you're there. Uh, share this podcast with your friends, family, and other strangers you think need a wellness update. And subscribe to us on iTunes while you're there. Leave a five-star rating because that's what uh, Damien and Brett loves. And myself as well. As well. So leave a comment there. <laughs> Until next week, begin creating wellness into our lives. Lead by example. Let's change the world of health together. Join us next week on the Wellness Guy Show. 
Hi, this is Lawrence Tan from the Wellness Guys and Insights Champions Mind. The Wellness Summit is fast approaching and we have some limited spots for a selected group of people. If you are ready to take your body, your mind, and your life to the next level, join us as a VIP at the Wellness Summit. Ask the speaker any question you want at our meet and greet and a VIP dinner. You get to sit in the first front four rows for an intimate experience and you get to take home the DVDs and MP3 recordings of the entire event. And for VIP Platinum holders, you get also a $500 wellness couch voucher to spend on any upcoming wellness couch event. Hurry, these Golden Planet VIPs are strictly limited. And for more information and to book your tickets, go to www.thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter, The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.